I'm Jennifer Isabella, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. We have a special episode for you this week. As we head into 2021, there's no better time to review some of the major predictions our analysts have made for the year ahead. Let's dig in. Like most business leaders, CMOs faced a bumpy ride in 2020, with media plans getting thrown out and budgets slashed. Shar Van Boskert says, to succeed in 2021, CMOs will have to redefine their role. So Forrester has called for CMOs to assume a more strategic leader for years. We have expected and have uh, worked with CMOs to become the drivers of customer obsession at their firms. But the reality sort of pre-2020 is that um, CMOs universally haven't taken that lead. They, in fact, have ceded control to a chief customer officer or a chief experience officer, or in some cases, a chief digital officer. And so what I am expecting to happen in 2021 is that CMOs who do not assume a leadership role and do not help push their businesses toward success and move in a pivoted way out of this recession won't have a role within their organization. There will be attrition for CMOs that just continue to maintain a purely functional role. Um, and I think one of the the big um, eurekas here is that many poor performing CMOs, or maybe that's unfair, maybe CMOs who have played a much more tactical role are going to be discovered. They're going to be found out. They can't keep hiding behind the strong returns of a good economy because the economy is going to show that businesses have to work harder. They actually have to come up with a way that they are adjusting their business model to better suit the needs of their customers today. And it is the CMO who should figure out how to do that. So when we think about what that means the CMO changes, what do you pivot? First of all, you you change the way you think about what your role is, that you think about being a leader within the organization to solve your company's challenges and deliver value to your customer. That's different than just waiting for someone else to come up with the answer and then promoting it through media or marketing communications. This is about coming up with the solutions as the CMO and working them through the organization. In the B2B space, the pandemic accelerated changes that were long in the works. Lori Wisdo and Mary Shea predict that AI and other technologies will help B2B marketers and sellers deliver richer, more intuitive experiences within the buyer journey. AI-enabled chatbots will get a lot better at, at guiding buyers, understanding the context of the buyer, understanding the previous beha- behavior of the buyer, understanding what other buyers have found successful at this point in time in their journeys, and offering up the right kinds of, of really useful guidance. And so um, so there's, there, isn't, there is a change in the technology um, that needs to be also, of course, guided or informed by the buyer, you know, by, by this buyer orientation. So yeah, a lot, of, a lot of what we saw marketers doing, and this is why I said that the journey orientation, I think was something that happened in 2020 that will carry forward into 2021. And how it will manifest in 2021 is by saying, how do I, how do I create this personalized engagement at scale, that, that, and and so the um, the use of personalization technologies that are AI empowered 
uh, AI uh, enabled uh, is was one of our our major our major predictions, and that is because you know there's B two B buying journeys are very complex. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of people involved, and so the you know without one thing that has stopped personalization a little bit is if it's all rules based it's too difficult to think through all the permutations and that, that a buyer might encounter. So the ability to have the um, machine learning and the artificial intelligence um, recommend and make decisions uh, that are going to, you know, based upon prior successful outcomes uh, that are going to help that buyer move through a journey is, um, is a great accelerant. Um, now, is it risky to try these things? Yeah, it is. And, you know, people have been piloting, but the need for, creating that personalized and valuable uh, contextually aware engagement at scale uh, when we know that more and more of our engagement is going to be digital. Two or three years ago, every sales technology uh, provider had some sort of embedded automation or AI. And I think it was almost unnecessary from a marketing perspective versus from something that was actually driving relevant real business outcomes. What we've seen over the last couple of years is that the technologies have matured. Now, certainly there's a lot more uh, that needs to happen in order to make it um, truly, truly transformational. But we're at a place now where uh, automation and AI can really start to not just drive efficiencies, because I also think there's a little bit of a bad rap around just it's all sales tools are just about efficiencies. But where I see the excitement and where my, my enthusiasm is for the effectiveness, the ability for these tools to enable, and Laurie was really saying this, better interna interactions, better connections. Our research shows that sellers today spend about 16% of their time in actual selling activities. So, you know, conversations like this or um, pitches or, um, you know, networking or building relationships, negotiating, that's actually not a lot of time. So one of the reasons I think that AI and automation will really help sellers is on the effectiveness side. Um, you'll be able to get uh, recommendations on next best action to take. What's the best channel? What's the best time? What, what prospect or customer has a higher propensity to want to listen to um, your solution? Who should I spend my time with, A or B? So when I, I did my research this summer, I found that 57% of B2B sales leaders plan to make deeper investments in AI and automation. And specifically, I'll share a couple of them, the top ones with you. One, uh, 20, over 20% said they wanted to automatically capture and upload sort of the human behavioral activities between buyers and sellers. So that's exciting because it takes sellers out of the data entry game. Um, they're pretty high paid to do data entry and a lot of our clients and hopefully I won't embarrass anyone in today's call are still asking me, Mary, how do I get my sellers to enter data into Salesforce? Well, you don't, you lost that battle. Let's go on to the next one. So that's super exciting. Um, the other one is make a recommendation to seller on the next best action to take with a buyer. So what is the right piece of content? Um, what is the best format of that content? What channel should I share that content in? And so on. And so with these capabilities, um, again, they're early days, you're going to start to see sellers deliver uh, much more personalized and, and meaningful experiences to buyers. And I think that's great. Customer experience organizations will have a new challenge to tackle in 2021, fostering consumer trust. David Trogue predicts that in a post-pandemic world, consumers will be drawn to brands whose safety protocols meet their standards. There's a concept that uh, kind of came onto the scene about five years ago that's referred to as zero UI. 
Um, and it's a bit of a misnomer because, of course, every experience has some kind of user interface, but uh, it's a bit of a provocation. And the point of the term zero UI is that UIs are much less screen-centric, um, less based on keyboard and mouse, um, and instead use modalities uh, like voice, like audio, like gesture, uh, like uh, presence and co-location, proximity. Um, so think about, um, you know, the, the simplest examples would be speaking to Siri on your iPhone or, um, you know, paying uh, at a store using uh, Apple Pay uh, without having to actually touch a pin pad. Um, so these have kind of been curiosities in recent years and Zero UI has, has sort of, you know, made some progress um, and we, we use Siri or Alexa and it sort of seems magical but only because it works at all, right? The, the, abil the abilities of Alexa and Siri are actually not that great now when you think about what you would want to be able to ask uh, and, and hear back. Um, but now there's a real practical reason for them, which is that when you go into a business, into a public place, you don't want to touch that ATM screen. You don't want to touch those elevator buttons. You don't want to touch that pin pad, right? And so suddenly Zero UI goes from what had been kind of a curiosity, sort of a sci-fi magic thing to something that's actually practical that businesses need to invest in. Um, and that's going to, I think, drive a lot of investment in trying to create zero UI experiences. Some will be successful. I think it's gonna turn out to be a lot harder than it seems initially. I think like with any new technology or relatively emerging technology, there's a lot of enthusiasm initially that sometimes leads people to forget about the first and second order consequences that can be not so great. Uh, and in particular, in the case of zero UI, there are a lot of very interesting modalities for interactions that um, are going to exclude some por portion of the customer base. Um, for example, if you think about, you know, uh, touch interfaces uh, that could be difficult for some people who have mobility impairments or voice interfaces that are difficult if, for example, you're not a native English speaker um, and you try to say something and the system does not understand you. For CIOs, resilience was the top priority during the pandemic in 2020. But Matt Carini and Brian Hopkins predict that technology leaders will have to double down on innovation to differentiate their firms in 2021. You know, we did some research earlier this year from a couple of other analysts on the CIO team, Bobby Cameron and, and, and Andy Bartels, where they did some really fascinating analysis on how companies were dealing with the pandemic, driven a lot by the industry they were in. And so we we classified companies as growth mode, uh, survival mode, or folks in the middle of that, like adaptive mode, right? And one of the things that we've been talking about in some of our predictions or in the uh, kind of the unstable new normal report that I was a part of is the fact that we think the pandemic is creating winners and losers. And the winners are those companies that either by luck find themselves in growth mode, or if they're in that adaptive mode, they have the balance sheet and the vision at the board level to invest. I mean, I say, you know, when the stock market's down, buy if you have cash, right? So companies that are sitting on cash that are having the will to invest in creating the technology foundations today are going to set themselves well up for tomorrow. Whereas companies who are just like, where can I cut technology uh, are finding themselves um, hanging that sign up. And there's plenty of those. So. I think it, it starts with around those customer and employee experiences. Um, so many of our businesses have changed with the way that we engage uh, with products and services and with co companies and customers and things like that, that 
I think technology is going to be leveraged even more in the years ahead. Um, we've seen it over the, the past five to seven years anyway, but I think that acceleration, as I mentioned up front, um, will just, just ramp up. And so the ability to bring technology in and use that in different ways, especially if you need it, if you're in those lower modes that Brian talked about, if, you know, if you're in survival mode or even adaptive, um, the ability to use technology in a different way to shift some of the um, cost dynamics around the way that you engage as well as an opportunity. But the people at the, at the front end, um, this is where I think they're going to push that advantage and maybe even you know, widen their, their, uh, their lead on other uh, companies. Because as Brian said, you know, when there's blood in the water, they're, they're buying. And um, these are the people that are going to be investing and they're going to be buying technology or buying assets from the people at the other end that have to get out of markets or to change their position because their technology just won't allow them to compete at the same levels. An example is probably best here. Um, if we think about the restaurant and, and uh, business, one of the things that we've seen is a lot of a lot of restaurants hanging out the the, the closed sign, um, whereas the one industry that seems to be benefiting from the pandemic is the pizza industry. Um, and so one one way to look at that is to think, well, okay, a lot of people want to order from home, and and the pizza industry has for years been working very closely with delivery services, and so in this rapid shift of customer behaviors, companies, traditional restaurants that weren't ready for that shift kind of got left, but no one's coming. What do I do? Whereas the industries that's most closely already connected into a digital ecosystem like pizza delivery is now in a position to get the benefit of the fact that people are still spending money eating food. It's just now being delivered. So if you're hooked into that industry, you're in a much better position. So Domino's Pizza, you know, they spoke at one of our events three or four years ago where they started a transformation from being a company that sells pizza to a software company that, oh, by the way, delivers pizza. And a lot of the things they're doing is diversifying beyond just, hey, we make pizzas and deliver it via emojis on your phone to we're a software platform and we're going to build and sell software in the delivery services ecosystem so that we have a balance of digital and physical, right? And so that's the thing that we see a lot of companies thinking about is I can't just be a physical company anymore because if another pandemic happens, if the China firewall goes up, if something blows up, I may have to shift rapidly from digital to physical and from physical back to digital. I mean, I joke, uh, uh, maybe the next thing that happens, and it's not joking, is somebody sets an EMP off and takes the internet down then we're not going to be able to do digital. So the companies that can do physical, right, delivery of products and services are going to be at an advantage. And we just don't know what's going to happen. So you have to kind of hedge your bets, I think. And that's the way you're going to use technology. In Europe, Laura Ketzel predicts that business leaders will have both Brexit-related challenges as well as new AI regulations coming at them in 2021 after some high-profile missteps last year. There have been some high-profile incidents that aren't truly AI, but as you know, differentiating in the minds of general consumers and indeed in the minds of many of us, right, between what's real AI and what's just, you know, using algorithms to do things and so on is very difficult. And one of the best examples is actually the, in the UK, which of course will be finally finishing its transition period and leaving the EU at the end of this year, but nonetheless, all of Europe saw this with its um, end of high school exams this past uh, this past year so because they couldn't run the usual very high stakes exams because of the pandemic the uk decided to take everybody's grades and then put them through a complex algorithmic manipulation process and spit out what they thought should be the students grades if they had taken the exam 
And the algorithm turned out to do a stunningly poor job in terms of being equitable towards people from kind of more disadvantaged backgrounds, kids at fancy private schools did better, you know, like all the things you would not want out of an algorithmic grade estimation process if you were interested in an equitable society. So there were in, that was the highest profile one, but there were some others. And also you've had a bunch of European companies themselves coming out with some frameworks for the ethical use of AI, like Rolls-Royce is one, for example, over the past year. So I think those things combined have really raised the kind of specter of what if this isn't applied in a human and equitable way for European citizens. And then the other piece of it is that the way that the, the uh, GDPR is written talks about what they call automated decision making, which is computers making decisions that affect your life as a human being. So that's what AI does too. So European consumers and residents have had a lot of time to sort of think about, oh, I understand that there are, there are pieces of software making decisions about whether I get a mortgage or get a job or whatever, and they know they have the right to appeal those decisions. So I think a lot of things have come together to make that important both in the minds of kind of European residents and citizens in general, and also in the minds of the various European rulemaking and legislative bodies. The UK will not be what is usually called GDPR adequate. And so what that means is that if you have European uh, resident data that you are currently just transferring to the UK and working with there, you know, just like without any controls, you need to stop that now and you need to start treating the UK like a third country. And so all your data transfer, and what that means is all your data transfers to the UK of European resident data have to be treated just like as though the UK were the US or any other non-GDPR adequate country. So what that means is you'll either need to use the same kind of technical uh, technical controls where you have standard uh, contract clauses and you encrypt things and so on to deal with the data that you're transferring to the UK that's European resident data, or you can stop transferring. But like those are your, those are your choices. And so anybody who hasn't thought about that already, please, please, please go think about it now because you will have problems with the European data protection regulators in the future if you do this without, you know, without actually doing anything about it. Clearly 2021 will bring a lot of change, challenge and opportunity for technology and business leaders. If you want to hear more from our analysts on these topics, you can find full episodes of the What It Means podcast at 4.com slash what it means. That's F-O-R-R dot com slash what it means. Thanks for joining us.